Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Thoughtful Intentions. I'm your host, Fiona Winch, and today I am joined by Kira Robbins. Kira Robbins is an enthusiastic TV watcher, book reader, creative learner, and someone trying to stop describing herself by her job descriptions first. After graduating in 2019 with a BFA in stage management and a BA in political science, Kira steadily climbed the theater work ladder until the pandemic. Since then, she has worked in digital art on a political campaign in an elementary school classroom and somehow landed in Prague to study film. Back from Europe, she now lives in Los Angeles, combining all her previous skills while also trying to find her footing in her new career path, the film industry. Hi, Kira. Hi, that makes me sound so much cooler than I think I am. You you are <laughs> cool. You are so cool. <laughs> well, I was I was trying to find a way to highlight everything that we could possibly talk about. So nobody was blindsided at the beginning. So we'll see if we hit every single note. We'll no, get there. <laughs> no, I really appreciate that. Like you did the outline for me. Like that's fantastic. <laughs> Great. Hopefully this one's your easiest one to record. I, I also love that you started that you're trying to stop describing yourself as your job descriptions first, because like, I don't know why that's such a struggle, but it really is. It's so difficult. I, my entire ex- existence, especially because I feel like when you're in a creative industry, it's like your job is your hobby. So the thing is, is you're supposed to do the thing you love. And so you describe yourself on the job you have, but then you think about it and you're like, that's not in any way indicative of who you are as a person. Like you have so many interests and career directions. And there are people out there who work in, let's say HR, because they're like, I enjoy my coworkers, not because this is the dream that I wanted to have one day. And maybe they did want to be in HR one day. Don't want to diminish any of that, but I'm trying very, very hard, even though it's incredibly difficult. I'm trying very hard to to establish myself as a person first, job second. Right. Well, that's even, you know, since I've kind of pivoted industries, you know, I have to, to, to have a little caveat at the end of like, this isn't because I in any way have given up my theater aspirations. Like I'm not, uh, it's also just so fluid. Like, why can't I enjoy exploring this right now? You know? exactly that's that's all I ever do is I'm like well why can't I whip out some like scissors and a newspaper and start collaging today even though I'm not an artist like yeah who who cares cares? just do it (laughs) yeah um so that's that's great I'm very excited um and on that note you do do so many things so that makes a lot of sense that you would um frame it that way and I've been wanting to talk to you for a while because of how multifaceted you are um which cracks me up that you're like I don't know what we would talk about. I'm like, Kira, you do so many, (laughs) so many different things, which I think is so cool. Um, and what got me even more excited was your response to my question, what you would want to talk about if you don't mind me sharing and we don't have sure. to, get, we're not going to get to this right away, but like, I just need to share it off the bat. Cause it's, so, it was cracking <laughs> up. Um, I asked Kira as I do all my guests, what she would want to talk about. And she said, all is open for me. You could literally text me and be like, actually, let's talk about how you are now radicalized and want to abolish email and also completely change our educational system. And I would re- be ready to discuss it at a moment's notice. <laughs> so I was like, Oh, <laughs> oh, I am game. We're on board. Let's do this. I, I read a lot of this. books that changed my world. So yeah, no, I want to get to that. I want to get to that. Um, 
yeah, I'm ready. I am ready. Um, <laughs> but before we go down that rabbit hole, I kind of want to do things a little chronologically just so I can track like your thought process here, yes. um, because you have explored a lot of different industries and jobs that I feel like a lot of people wouldn't expect go together necessarily, but they do. And they make sense because it's you and your interests, which is like my bread and butter here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I was trying to think back to like when, you know, obviously I, Karen, and I first met at Penn state. Um, she was a design and tech student, uh, doing stage management. Right. Right. I'm right about this. Yes, you're absolutely right. (laughs) Um, And we first got like close when Kira approached uh, Cameron and myself about helping with Wonderlust because Cameron and I had founded this student run theater company. And Kira, who was a year younger than us, um, still is, but was incredibly (laughs) enthusiastic and willing to work on everything. Like, I don't know how you had the time to do it. Um, but she helped us really like run auditions, get productions off the ground, talk to faculty. Like you were just this, just such a game changer for us. Um, we didn't know how to do most of that. So, (laughs) well, I believed in what you were doing. It was, it was something different, something that I felt was needed. And like everything I do, I do because I have high expectation on filling holes. And so that's why I never did my homework in school because whatever, But all of these like projects that I take on is mostly because I see somebody else getting excited about something and trying to do something new that we haven't seen before. And what better thing than to join that person and make that come to fruition? Like that's an incredibly fulfilling thing to be a part of. No, I totally agree. But you were just like, you hit the ground running. Like that was your freshman year. So I was just surprised by how like, I don't know, bold and like willing and excited you were to collaborate because I don't, I mean, personally and not to project, but I feel like I didn't have the same like boldness that you just naturally have um, in the best way. So um, (laughs) with that said, I don't think I ever really got to know why you studied design and tech, like why you were going into stage management. I don't think I really ever got that story. So I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about that, especially because it is such a um, the program itself is just extremely like challenging and time consuming and one of the best in the country. Yeah, it's um, definitely not for the faint of heart because of the just amount of hours you have to put in on a weekly basis. Uh, stage management specifically, that was, um, I had all of my classes, which as a BFA, it's more credits than other things. I also have a degree in political science. So I had to fill yes. in all of my other classes for that. And then you go, um, classes end at 4.30 PM and by 5.30, you're in the rehearsal room and there until like 11.30 at night, six days a week. It's, it's insane. Um, so I don't necessarily think that that is the healthiest way of living. Um, but for the select few that, that it worked for, Thankfully, we got a lot out of it. Um, I basically, I kind of got thrown into theater. The the origin story that I like to tell people with the caveat that mm-hmm. my mother is very loving. So just keep that in mind. Um, when I was in uh, growing up, I played all the sports. Every every child in, in my extended family were sports kids. Um, and then seventh grade came around and I was like, Hey mom, when's soccer practice? And she goes, I didn't sign you up. You should do the play. <laughs> and then no way. like winter would come around. I'd be like, when's basketball spring, when's softball. And each time she'd say like, I didn't sign you up. You were 
only okay. You should do theater instead. Get out of here. <laughs> so that's kind of how I started in theater. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I didn't just know kind of... that. <laughs> yeah. So again, my mother is very loving, but she's also very um, practical. And she saw that I was playing sports longer than all of my teammates and only was mediocre the entire time. So I, uh, I was the one kid that deviated from the, um, the path of sports and I did ended you, up like, in theater. Did you push back at all? Like, were you upset about it? I was incredibly upset about it, but I also like, for me, I, I loved the sport. I loved being part of it, but I'm also, I think I've just been a good compartmentalizer my entire life before I even realized it. So when I had an opportunity to audition for a play, it wasn't like, oh, now I'm doing this because I'm not doing the sport. It was just like, oh, why don't I do this? And then I realized, oh, well, now I have time for that because I don't have this like practice every day. Mm. Um, so yeah, I did that. I started in there. And then when I got to high school, I was super lucky that I had this amazing teacher. His name is Mark Crixton. He is a life-changing human being to more people than I can, than I can count. He's changed the lives of so many students, including my older sister, who's 10 years older than me. Um, he was her theater teacher as well. And he came out of retirement my freshman year. And he was the person that looked to me and was like, you're going to be an assistant stage manager. And that was just all I ever did. And by the time I got to deciding colleges, it was either I go for film or I study stage management. And I chose that stage management. I'm so glad I did because it's what I should have done. It's, it's definitely the path I should have taken. Um, but I have no idea if I would have known anything about that if it wasn't for my mother who kicked me out of sports and my lovely teacher, Mark Crixton, who told me you can be a stage manager today. And I did. <laughs> so for also for people that don't know, stage managers do. Yes, they do it all. My favorite, um, my favorite way that people who know things, so they're not just making this up to describe stage managers is they are the theater version of an air traffic controller when it comes to high stakes and um, high, uh, high reward and high risk, the whole thing. Um, we end up basically being the center of an entire production when it comes to organizing it and pulling everything together and ensuring that the creative minds that we work with get to tell the story they want to tell and do it safely, do it successfully, do it um, to the uh, enjoyment of everybody around. It's a lot of communication. It's a lot of emails and spreadsheets. It's, it's that being able to answer problems before they become problems and a lot of working ahead of the curve. Um, it's it takes the kind of brain power that a lot of people don't want to use. And so it's really fun to be the person in the room to be able to solve those problems because everybody else is thinking about um, their particular area. And my job is to know enough about everybody's area to, um, to be able to ask the right questions, even though I'm not the designer in the room. Yeah. I feel like I didn't even realize that that's what a stage manager did and, and was until college. And I just out of curiosity, I, I've thought about, you know, it is so type A, it's very analytical. Like, I wonder if I would have explored that at any point had I known about it earlier. Yeah, for you know, sure. Um, I also think it's really, it's really important to understand that there is a stereotype of what a stage manager is a person who is very authoritarian and not, doesn't, not a person who laughs and enjoys their time. They're always telling you, you know, 
put that down. That's not yours. Things like that. And I hate that idea of what a stage manager is. I don't, I definitely ascribed to it when I was in high school and I, I was mean when I didn't need to be mean in high school, because that's kind of what I viewed the way to get things done. And I very actively strayed away from that once I got to college and, you know, found out who I was more of a person as a person. And it, I want to have fun. I want to make friends. I want to enjoy my time and laugh the whole time. I'm not here to be serious because nothing is life and death when it comes to the entertainment business. So I, um, it's, it sounds like that one type of person can do the job, but really it's the type of mind. I feel like somebody who just can problem solve and has a lot of fun building spreadsheets and sending emails, (laughs) but it doesn't necessarily apply to like a certain personality type. And I think that's really Mm -hmm. important for the career to understand. Yeah, no, thank you for that caveat. Um, I, it's so funny because if you would ever have described yourself as mean to me, I would be like, that's not that's not the Kira Robbins I know. Like, I don't. Oh, I know. I don't I know you ever to person. not be smiling. Like, every time I see you, you're smiling. It's amazing. Um, okay, so you did a lot. I mean, you did. You started stage managing shows, like, at Penn State, at least. Very early. Like, I feel like you guys unlike a lot of the acting and musical theater students, like you guys were running things from day one, um, which is incredible. But I also know that you did this outside of the school of theater as well. I, f- I feel like you were really busy with like the TEDx talks and things of that nature, like just involved yeah. in every organization, <laughs> like taking these skills and these um, th- these things that you were doing for theater and applying them elsewhere. Yeah, there, I mean, Penn State has a lot of student work for theater, as you know, there's like no refund and the thespians and everything. And I wasn't involved with those groups. So there are some stage managers who were, and so they got amazing opportunities to try different things as um, school theater stage managers, but, you know, just people who love theater in other circumstances. But most of my outside of the school work was what you said, like taking my skills and trying it in something different. So like the TEDx PSU, I got to do essentially operations, which is the event side of what a stage manager kind of does. Um, that was absolutely amazing. And then I also was on the Performing Arts Council, which essentially spoke with all of the performing mm-hmm. arts groups on campus, your group Pack. Wanderlust being one of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, uh, that was really cool to be able to just meet new people and do all of that and, and organize in that sense. So yeah, I tried different things, but, um, it was very limited the amount that I wanted to actually stage manage stage manage. Cause that's a huge commitment. as we know, I mean, personal processes are not short. You got through the whole thing. And so I did a few with Wonderlust, and I loved it, but, um, there are tons of opportunities outside the school to just try things that fit in your skill set, but aren't necessarily what your career path is at the moment. And I think that's really important to explore. Okay. With that said, though, how did you have the freaking time? I just don't know how you had the time to do all those things. Here's the secret. And it's part of my radicalized education oh my opinions. Okay. I didn't do any homework. Oh, you said that. <laughs> I truly was the worst student. I no way. had multiple professors change the curriculum for me just so I could pass a class. No way. And absolutely true. Are you and serious? Yes. But the thing was, is I had those professors willing to make those changes because I was always in class. I was always asking questions. I was always attentive and I was doing really well on exams. Um, and I so- never <laughs> guessed that. This was, is- this a, was this a college thing or was this a high school thing too? Eighth grade. I had to go to therapy. <laughs> You're like, this goes back. 
I had to go to therapy. I had to get tested for, for learning disabilities. I had to do the whole thing. My parents did the whole nine yards to try to figure out how to get me to do my homework. <laughs> it was a disaster. Wow. But today, right on my wall next to where I'm sitting, I have both my degrees staring at me in very fancy frames and directly above them. I don't have these yet, but I'm, I'm waiting to find the right frames Uh are my transcripts from college to tell you that I got these two degrees and I know everything that I needed to learn to get those two degrees, but my transcripts are C's and B's and D's and even a couple F's like that, that is because I learned and I, I had to do the few classes I did fail. I professors suggest taking a different class because they were like, there's no point in you taking this class again because you know your stuff. It was just the homework. So I'm very much you, you get out of, I'm here to learn. And that's what I did. I went to school my whole life. I've always been there to learn, but I'm not there to do homework. (laughs) And I know homework can be really, really important for students who need it. And so it's just, it's a, it's a personal thing, but like, I I was there to learn and that was it. (laughs) Like you are one of the most involved students when I think of like my college experience. And I think of like the super involved students, you are one of the first people that comes to mind. Like you were everywhere. Everyone all thinks I was time. an honor student and everything. <laughs> wow. That's wild. Yeah. Okay. And I, I, I mean, I always tell people this and it's funny. My parents are like, Kira, maybe you shouldn't tell people what your grades are. Like, maybe <laughs> you should just keep that one to yourself. No. And I'm like, no, everyone talks to me. And like, this is a little bit of my active bragging, not even trying to hide it, but I know I'm smart. I know, I know I'm good at a lot of things. And so when talking to people, they always assume that I was a really good student because of the way I speak. And I just, I hate that idea that we like associate intelligence with good grades because grades have nothing to do with how smart you are. I, um, I wanted to be a person who did homework, but that's kind of just, how my system worked in my brain. And I still got so much out of these classes. I talk about them all the time. I keep my notes on my bookcase because I find them so fascinating, but I didn't get a good grade in those class. It just doesn't mean though that I didn't learn. And that's part of my radicalized opinions. (laughs) Wow. No, I mean, I, I have so many thoughts because I'm thinking about how just, I just, never even thought of not doing homework as an option. You know, not that I'm saying that you thought of it as an option. (laughs) I'm a little stubborn and bold. I get that. (laughs) No, no, no. But, but I think you are speaking to something very real of like, there's this expectation of what a good student looks like. And it's, it's not one size fits all. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's not like a great litmus test. You know, my mom, would be the first to say that. Cause she's, she taught high school English for 36 years and she yeah. has gotten so frustrated with, um, the AP world and like mm-hmm. that exam world and just, um, standardized testing and like all these things that, you know, her students were studying to get the grade, not to learn. So it's like the flip side of what you did. It's like, yeah, so many kids are just trying to get the GPA, trying to get the grade, trying to get, the score on their AP exam because they think that that's what they're supposed to do because that's what essentially in theory gets you into college and then gets you the job and whatever. Yeah. You're just a number to in, in both mm -hmm. the way you view yourself and the way that like a lot of places view you is just as a number and the grades you get. And that's, 
entirely unfair and weird and uncomfortable. And we look at these other countries that have successful educational systems, far more successful than the United States. And a lot of them don't, um, don't assign homework. They don't live in this world that homework is an expectation of learning because learning happens in the classroom. And I had one teacher tell me, a professor in college, he, um, commented on the fact that I didn't do any of the homework and we had a meeting and he told me that, um, that obviously I had to get it done. And I said, I am learning in the classroom. I, I have a hard time reading. I have a really slow reading speed, sixth percentile. It's awful. All of our homework was doing readings. And he says, no, you have, you learn from these readings and then we accommodate or uh, we add to that learning in the classroom. And that really frustrated me because why should I be learning by myself when I have this classroom with so many other people on the same topic that I can learn together with? Mm-hmm. And he was so stubborn on that sense. And then the next time I walked into that guy's uh, office, I got one of the highest grades on the exam in the entire class. And I said, it's... <laughs> I didn't even know what to say to him at that point. Like, yeah, I was listening in class. (laughs) Yeah. And he was absolutely dumbfounded that I did so well. Um, I mean, he was impressed. He was pleasantly surprised. But it was one of those moments where I was like, yeah, I did not do a single reading for your class. And yet, obviously, I did really well. And it was an essay. It was an in-class essay was the exam. We wrote three essays. Um, we weren't given the prompts ahead of time, which um, my high school education system, like I was international baccalaureate, not AP. So I was used to doing in-class mm-hmm. essays. So I had that background of knowing how to do them well. And it just has to do with being able to argue your point and understand the content. And that has nothing to do with whether or not you read something. It has to do with whether or not you can discuss it with someone. And when you read that thing, doesn't matter. You can read it in class in the form of a discussion or in the form of a lecture, things like that. Mm So I I have very strong opinions of how the education system should work. I do understand that I'm an individual and not everybody will succeed with my way of doing things, but also that's Mm -hmm. the beauty of it is the whole system doesn't work for everybody. So let's try to find something that can accommodate different groups of people. I don't know, just a suggestion. Oh, totally, totally. (laughs) I'm thinking like I... I was thinking about the fact that the one class that I did take in college that was not even hybrid learning, it was an online course. And I, it was, I feel like I mentioned this before, but, um, I thought I was sneakily getting out of my math credit by taking this online course. It was symbolic logic. I had not a clue what was going on and it was, I had to like try to teach myself what was happening and I didn't even know who the professor was. Like, you know, they put stuff on angel or whatever we used, but like, Oh my God, I forgot the term angel. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it changed. <laughs> what, like, why did they have to constantly be know. changing they, the way yeah. <laughs> the online, but, but they would put like, he would put stuff online and I'd be like, I don't even know where we're starting. I have no idea what's happening. Like the first two chapters, I remember being like, oh, this is, this isn't too bad. And then chapter three came along and everything felt different. And I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> this isn't good. Ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I do know some people that learn well, hybrid or like learning journals, but that's, that's just to your point is it's yeah. everyone is different. Um, and I'm very curious now to ask you because you worked in a school. <laughs> so oh, how did I was that a bad work? influence to some of my students. How did that work? <laughs> um, well, it was an elementary school, so it's a little different. Okay. But I, um, we are jumping chronologically for a little bit. That's okay. I'm you okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're on this school thing, and I have to ask 
Okay. Um, so I, I got hired to be what they called a classroom monitor. It was essentially for any sort of hybrid classroom because of COVID where, especially if the teacher was still at home, then I would just be kind of just a babysitter in the classroom and making sure that all of the technology was working and things like that. Okay. But it's just so happened that based on needs and kind of how everything came back together, I ended up getting tossed into the special education department specifically for the fifth and sixth graders. And so as a completely unqualified, um, both of my sisters are teachers. So I, I know how hard it is to be a teacher through their stories. And I know that I would be an awful teacher myself, but other than that, you know, no other background in education. And I was now suddenly sitting side by side with students, either one on one or in classroom settings, supporting them in math, science, English, history, everything. Um, and it was fascinating to just watch how people work, to learn from these educators who love what they did and love these age groups. Um, I did the first student that I spent the majority of my time with um, was when the, uh, before the whole school was back in person or the majority of the school, uh, the student was in, um, in school early for intervention, meaning that they weren't succeeding too well at home. Mm. And so we just had me sitting in a classroom with this student by ourselves and they were going through the whole day and I was just supporting them in whatever way they needed to ensure that they were paying attention and getting their work done. And this student had the hardest time existing in the system that we had created and um, there were a lot of suggested, you know, routes to help the students stay focused and stay engaged. And most of them just didn't work because the students saw through them. They're in fifth grade. They were smart and they were totally capable of doing a lot of these things, but also had really low self-worth. And so they didn't necessarily think that they could do these things. And so I, unfortunately for maybe some of the sticklers out there of, of you know, this is how you do things. I um, opened up with this kid and was like, hey. Some things we just got to do to make people happy and other things let's, let's do it in the way that you want to do it because you're still doing something. And so there were moments that the student was entirely uninterested in doing anything we were supposed to be doing and just wanted to mess around and play and do whatever. And I was like, great, if we're going to do that, then we're going to make something out of it. So there was a giant blow up globe that they wanted to throw around. And I was like, cool, now we're going to name the, the, you know, countries on this globe as we're tossing it around because at least well, we're doing something. You know? Yeah. And you and are there a problem a solver. <laughs> so yeah, there are a few moments where it's just like, at what point do you finally realize that you're not going to teach this child about light refraction and you have a chance to teach them about something else? And you have the choice mm -hmm. to either say, okay, we're just going to push until you get light refraction, or we're just going to do something else and you're going to learn that day. And I just don't understand the need to the push. That's that's very much the like American educational system to say you have to hit these you know, goalposts. We were just like, okay, we're going to do something. And so um, we did a few, we would play games where the student would like call random names. Like, you know, one, this one th place is called your mom and like, you know, be trying to be silly. And then I would find, try to find ways to take that silliness and make at least some sort of process out of it that they would get something out of it. Like and for a few still, moments, you're still like for pro like some kind of progress <laughs> being made. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, this so, is yeah. a unique situation though, because you're one-on-one, -on -one. like obviously it can't be that way all the time in the classroom. No, no. And we did, um, 
when I was, when school came back in session, I was with this particular student less because of just how the schedules worked, which kind of made me sad because, um, the student, I felt I bonded with them. And so I really wanted to, you know, see their progress grow because sometimes we would get things done. So many things done one day they were out of school, um, for whatever reason, but they were still online on the computer. And, um, I was supposed to be at recess with another one of my students. And I asked them if it was okay that while I was at recess, I was on the computer with this kid because they needed, um, to finish an essay or something, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. five sentences. And so they were. And so I was basically just sitting at recess outdoors with my laptop open, just chanting for this kid to finish this homework. They did. They did it. That's all they needed to do. And it was so exciting, but they just needed someone to tell them that they could do it and wait with them until they finished it. And so this particular student thrived in one-on-one, but then when you put them in the classroom and say, here, figure it out, they start shrinking back again. And so you see where the success is, but you don't have the opportunity to actually follow through with those factors of success. So, so what's we- your solution if you have 30 kids in a classroom? How, how, what, what has your observation and opinion changed? Like, how do you accommodate everyone? My number one thing that I am now absolutely certain is every single classroom should have a classroom aid in it. No okay. matter, no matter what, it should just be another adult that can assist, but does not teach. Cause that's what I was for. Once we got back into school, I, I, I was there for particular students, but I also, if that student didn't need anything in the moment, I could help other students. And it just made so much difference. There was, I spent all of one week in a classroom of sixth graders. And within that week, I discovered that one of my students was non-binary and used they, them pronouns and got to tell all of their teachers. So the, um, with their permission, of course, so that they're being referred to properly, but no, none of the teachers got to notice that because they were too busy teaching a class of 30 students. I was only there to just be there. And that's how I was able to notice these things. It's the little stuff that makes a huge difference to these kids. That's the, I mean, I, totally agree that that is a great solution. It's a tough ask though, right now, given how, you know, how many teachers were already short. Yeah. Well, I also just finished reading a book called money, the true story of a made up thing. And the um, final conclusion was essentially that as long as we are existing in the cycle of our own currency, we can just keep printing money. And the idea that we have debt is ridiculous because we're in debt to ourselves with our own currency and therefore just print more money. Ooh, I have some finance friends that are going to be upset with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, this is made by the, uh, the book was written by one of the co-hosts of NPR's planet money. And so there's obviously a lot more nuance to it. And the author goes into, you know, the arguments against that, but the, um, are you saying that like teachers should be paid more so that there's more support in schools? I mean, obviously, absolutely. (laughs) Um, most other countries also, um, have really higher, much higher expectations for teachers. And so they have to get higher degrees and they're more regarded. And I I learned about that in another book I read called the smartest kids in the world and how they got there by Amanda Ripley. Um, it is that book radicalized me so much. I recommended to everyone. What else Um, did you learn? They, well, so much, but one thing, um, about teachers is in other countries, for example, it's getting into a school to be a teacher is incredibly selective and it's as difficult, if not more difficult to get into med school, um, here in the U S 
And so to get there, just to be admitted into the program raises the standards of um, our expectations of teachers. Now, suddenly these people that in the United States we look at as, as, you know, like we kind of walk all over them because we assume they're always going to be there. Now it actually takes really high scores, really high. Um, what countries like, um, a few countries do it like this. This one I believe was, um, either Finland or Poland. Um, but, uh, essentially I think that, I think it was Finland, but, um, they require, they said that, um, they had to be in the top 1% of, um, like their standardized test scores into schools to be a teacher. And they said, I think it was 100% of all teachers or students in teaching school were their school's valedictorian. Like wow. it's just the, the standards are so high. It's the same thing mm-hmm. as if, as, as a, when we laud, you know, doctors and lawyers and, you know, everybody who reach a certain level in the United States, teachers are at that place. And yes. so when you have that societal feeling of basically superiority of the job, raising those, um, raising the salary makes sense. We're not even going to question it. Um, yeah, I'm there are bad ways that, to do like, it. You don't want to privatize, but <laughs> right, no, I'm just thinking of this, incre- like that incredibly toxic and untrue statement of if you can't do teach, like, oh my God, wh- I don't when, want someone who can't do teaching me <laughs> when, like, when did that come about? Why did that come about? Like, I, I don't know. I, I have a little bit of a different, obviously upbringing because my mom was a teacher for yeah, yeah. almost four decades. <laughs> Um, so and I'm sure very, you know that she can do. Oh my God. She's one of the <laughs> smartest, probably the smartest person I've ever met. Yeah, she absolutely her like knowledge knows no bounds. I am still con- constantly consistently impressed by how much she knows about like English history, religion, the world, like just a very, just, I don't know. She knows she, her memory is crazy. She knows a lot. Um, I also read, I forget the exact numbers. So everybody go read the book so that you can, you know, judge me if I'm wrong. Okay. But um, they were talking about the standards of becoming a teacher in the United States. And they said, I think it was the average like SAT score of students who went into major in teaching or education uh, was lower than the national average in the United States for SAT scores. Damn. Which is just, and, and because, um, the one big thing culturally wise that many other countries, I'd say most other countries have that we don't is in other countries, schools are for learning. That's all they're for. There's nothing else that happens in school, but learning, but here schools are for sports. Schools are for extracurriculars, like schools are for orchestra. Um, Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of people, especially in, um, smaller town areas where like community is, is viewed as more important than, uh, education. There are people who will apply to be teachers just so they can be the coach of the sport. And mm-hmm. that's what they do. They have no background in teaching math or whatever, but they're there to be the football coach. And so they will teach math just so they can be the football coach. And that was actually a person in the book was they, that, um, one of the people they interviewed was one of those people. He says that he always was good at math, but he never really considered it until he realized that that was his way of becoming a football coach. Wow. Um, yeah. and I mean like no shade to teachers because I think no, most no, of them, yeah. Most of them are extremely well-intended and go into this with like, you know, very selflessly. Um, Mm -hmm. But the larger point being that 
the system does not hold schools or education, like, you Mm -hmm. know, for learning, for learning. Yeah. The other, the other major point beyond, you know, higher expectations for educating teachers was also just raising expectations for students. That was a big thing that the United States really struggles with is we assume the bare, like the bare level, the rock bottom is what students are going to be capable of. And so we just expect that of them where time and time again, we, we see with proof that if you raise your expectations for a student, they will meet your expectations. They will follow through and complete everything you expect them to complete. And so if we have students that have higher, that are expected to do better, and then we'll have teachers who grew up with that mindset and therefore can do better. It's not the teacher's fault that they're the way they are. It's their childhood that led to that and the way, the way they saw other teachers. I will say that when I studied abroad for a semester in London, everything, our acting class, our other classes, the expectations were so much higher that it was actually jarring. Like my classmates mm-hmm. and I, who I, I believe are like, very talented and very smart and, you know, hardworking, it was a challenge. You know, we were, we were extremely challenged in the best way though. Like I I remember it so fondly, just how, um, how much I did learn and how much I did grow because of that. Cause I was pushed. They told a story of, um, one of the high schools that, of the kids that they followed in the book, um, in Gettysburg, it was a Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a school that had essentially a tracking system in high school. I think of like three or four different levels. And the lowest level was basically joked as quote, the knucklehead classes. Like they were designed oh. to be the dumb versions of absolutely everything. And so when the new principal came in, they just said, we're just going to get rid of that entire track we're not going to teach any of those classes anymore. And a ton of teachers pushed back saying, now these students are going to fail because they can't do any better than this. And you know what? No one failed. They got rid of all the classes and not a single kid dropped out. They just did the thing they were expected to do. That is a fine line though, because like, I know at least at my mom's school, there were a ton of students that took AP that shouldn't have taken AP, you know, like they would have excelled and believed in, believed in themselves were they in a class that was more like on their level and AP is not supposed yeah. to be for everyone it's called advanced placement for a reason yeah we grew up in an area that so, that I think we're on the other end of the issue of of yeah totally the toxic intelligence where <laughs> suddenly your entire self-worth is how hard the class you took and yeah. I I can see that I always have talked about that because I took easier classes because with IB, there's two levels. Um, and I would take the lower level of IB because I didn't want to do reading homework. Um, (laughs) so I was suggested to take the higher one by my counselors and teachers. And I didn't, because I knew the amount of work I wanted to put into it, but most of my classmates were struggling so hard to keep up with the content. So they shouldn't have been in that class, but the idea of not having the IB label on your class is just, they can't even imagine it. So I, I do think there's two ends of the spectrum totally, for sure. Totally. Yeah, no, you're right. We did grow up in an area, Kira and I are um, both from the DMV and we did grow up in an area that does um, hyper value <laughs> those types of programs. I did take one IB class in high school. I, I took, of the AP, I took mostly like English and 
humanities, but mm-hmm. I did take one IB 20th century history class and it was the worst, <laughs> the worst class I ever took. Like, oh, I, no. I vividly remember how happy I was when that class was over just because it was terrible. It was terrible. It was a lot of just memorizing <laughs> dates and like really trying to just memorize the content because which is not how it should be. That's no. not what IB is designed to do. IB no. is like the opposite my brother of memorizing. Did IB. Yeah. My yeah. brother did IB, but anyway, we've gone down quite the rabbit hole. <laughs> it's my I'm favorite topic to talk no, about. I'm we- not about it. And I, <laughs> I am like almost hesitant to ask this other question because it's like going to open another can of worms, but I have oh, to gosh. know why you want to abolish email. <laughs> Okay. Well, that's another book that you all can read. Wait, yeah. it's, it's called a world without email by Cal Newport. Okay. Um, email was created and then we developed what is referred to by the author of this book, the hyperactive hive mind, where essentially everything now is of the same level of importance. And we have to use our brains to decipher what we need to focus on at all times. And yet We are constantly being combated with new things so that we take our focus away from the thing that we should be paying attention to. Mm. And it, it goes back to the world of memos. For example, when you had to write a memo, you would write it, you'd give it to a mail carrier in the office. They would walk it to the person who it needs to go to put it in their office slot thing, wait for them to read it and get back to you. It's a long process. And so you have to decide what is important enough to put in a memo because memos were technically the fastest way to talk to a person that were far away from you. Once email was invented, who needs memos anymore? You could just shoot an email within seconds and get a response. And so we lost this level of what is important. And we have now stuck ourselves in this world of just two minutes on this. And now you get a new email. Now you got to do something else. And now you got to change your brain to another direction. You got to keep moving on and move, move, move. And it's, it's draining us. It's hurting us. We can't focus anymore. Um, And there's a lot of ways that we can combat it. And a major thing is essentially just saying, I, when I don't need to email someone, if I can like go down the hallway and talk to them, do that instead get rid of these email chains um, and set up your schedule in specific timeframes. You say, I work on my email. I look at my email at this times of day. And then these times of days I'm doing my own thing. And there's um, like specifically a workplace thing. Well, the relevance of email comes around work. Um, Other than that, it's, you know, spam from retailers. Um, So you, that is essentially what they're talking about is, is that email is that part of email for sure. But um, essentially it is a lot of the book is recommended to people who create email culture, like people who run businesses, but it also talks about ways that you can, you know, make those changes in yourself. And the one thing that they said was a huge change in a workplace culture was starting breaking your day off into blocks. And the first block of your day is a 15 minute meeting where everybody shares. This is what I did yesterday. This is what I'm doing today. Here's any problems that I have. And that's it. That's all you talk about. You don't, you don't have small talk. You don't talk about the weather. You don't talk about the birthday parties of the weekend. That's it. And then after that, that 15 minute call is over or meeting is over, you all go to your desks in your offices and you work on the thing that you said you're going to work on. And then that's it. That's all it is. And then you repeat. And it's so much more productive. It's better for our brains. We don't have to constantly be changing because we've learned that that when we ask our brains to do multiple outputs and inputs that don't correlate, we lose uh, our flow. Mm. And we're just trying to maintain a better workflow. And the thing is, is when email was introduced, we all said, great, cool. That's the new thing. 
but nobody's thought to change it yet. And we talk about people like um, Ford who created the assembly line and we say that was innovative. That was amazing. But the assembly line wasn't just created. It was a bunch of trials and errors of different types of workflows until we got to that. And yet we got handed email and we said, great, this is the new workflow, no changes. So mm-hmm. why aren't we changing more? Why aren't we considering different options to say, here's a better way to do things? Why is this the end all? Right. So, Interesting. That's my spiel. I will end on there. Yeah, yeah no, that, <laughs> so, that also kind of like, it feels like it coincides with this um, conversation that I've seen happening a lot now about how um, selling the workplace as a family is toxic because, mm-hmm. you know, the things that you would do for a family are not necessarily the things that you should be doing for your coworkers, yeah. like to a degree, of course, like just, you know, being available all the time and those other kinds of. Yeah. That idea oh, of like, like family. Because, yeah. Because it's, um, personal it's, you know, separating, separating work from the personal, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of interesting conversations happening around that right now. Yeah. That, that is especially, I like the phrasing of saying that it's um, it's not a family, even though people love explaining it like that. Um, Because you're right. If you put the boundary and say, you're great, but we're not family. Like that really does suddenly put a a dead stop in. Okay. You're right. If we're not a family, what are we? And so you have to establish what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not like we have to be strangers or that it has to be weird or like super formal, but, and it does, I think, matter what industry you're in because it does get, even for example, just because we were talking about education, I think in schools, it can feel much more like that because you are, um, I imagine as a teacher acting as more than just a teacher to a lot of your students, you know, you you wear a lot of other hats. So I don't know. It's just, we don't have to go down this (laughs) per se, but it is an interesting conversation. Like what, um, what work culture is going to look like, especially after this great resignation as so many are calling it. I hate people who try to name things. I feel (laughs) like it, it just adds some level of significance that sometimes you just have to say, let the world be the world. Yeah. Let things change. Like, why do you need to give it a name? And now suddenly people are fearing this looming great resignation that's coming at them. Like, just let the existence exist, you know? <laughs> I feel like maybe like journalism wouldn't be for you. <laughs> <laughs> I would be awful at coming up with taglines. My headlines would be a paragraphs long. They'd be like, here, you really should shorten this one. Make it more snappy. I said, isn't this amazing though? This is so like 15 funny. words. <laughs> Okay. Um, so just to bring it back to what you've been doing, because I did take a little bit of a leap going from you were doing theater things up until the pandemic. And then yes. you did get into the school system for mm-hmm. a moment. Um, oh my God, there's okay. This is the beauty of everything that you're into and everything that you do, because there's so many different directions I want to go right now. Like, so I'm going to actually <laughs> we'll have a multi-part podcast. Yeah. No, I'm going to, I'm <laughs> going to defer to you to which one you want to speak to first, because mm-hmm. I'm curious about like the political work that you did on the campaign. And I'm also curious about like the more art and film related stuff. Um, yes. Do you want to well- go? I I'll start with the political one because it's actually okay. far less long term than than I think it sounds. Okay. Um, it was a fully remote job, um, so I was just on my computer and email and Zoom every day. 
Um, but I worked for Shannon Fresh Hours campaign for Ohio's fourth district, congressional district. She was going up against a Jim Jordan, who is famously the one of the most to the right wackos out there. He he says things that are incredibly incredible lies and people believe them. He loves being on Fox News. And so it is an incredibly gerrymandered district. They call it the duck district. And so the chances of her winning were slim to none, but you can't just not try, you know? Yeah. Um, so that obviously I could go on for years about gerrymandering and how that should change and how Congress in itself should change. Cause again, I also studied political science and my focus in a lot of, of my classes was Congress. Um, but I will I will step back. That can be another episode. <laughs> I know. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I was the scheduler for her. So I essentially just communicated. We had 14 counties that were represented in her district. And so I would speak with their county leaders and we would, you know, set up the scheduling and everything, um, for different events that she was at. And, um, I never actually got to meet her in person. She came to DC for the March on Washington. Um, mm. and I was at the March, but we never ended up running into each other. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, but she's a lovely person and I really, really deserved the job. Um, obviously she did not win, um, which was expected, but, um, it was also in general, just a really tough race to win in, um, suburban rural Ohio in 2020 because they were very uh, riled up. You know, the, the conservatives wanted to vote conservative and Jim Jordan is incredibly famous for being a conservative. <laughs> um, so that, so it was a really cool experience. Just got it kind of actually seeing the campaign sides of things. Cause I've never really been part of a campaign. I've done a lot of activism in my life, but not for one particular candidate, but, um, that was as far as exciting as it gets. It was, um, not very, I wasn't, you know, on the front lines for anything. <laughs> no, but, uh, but my point here that I've tried to make with this podcast in general, and I think that you just exemplify it so well is, uh, I don't know, just like how fluid identity can be in terms of also, mm-hmm your professions and what you're interested in and your hobbies. And like, this does make sense because I know you, but like I said, (laughs) I don't know that everyone would pair all of these things together, you know, naturally. Uh, Well, when I was, um, when I first got to college, you know, and all the adults were asking me what I was majoring in and everything. Were people trying to like discourage you from doing poli-sci? Like, um, I was never discouraged against, um, I know a lot of people have horror stories of, of yeah. people trying to say, don't do this or don't do that. And I've never had actively anybody saying that. I think I preempted it a lot more than I probably needed to. I was, I was more on edge about people, you know, saying those things and they never ended up saying them, thankfully. But, um, I think I started getting a lot of questions of people saying like, oh, I didn't, I don't see those two things together, but I did notice that the more time went on, the less I got those comments. And I don't know if it was because these were people who looked at me and said, yeah, I can see that in in who you are in my like first impression, Mm -hmm. or maybe time was going on and, and our political sphere was changing. We had Trump as president. We, sure. We were, you know, becoming far more active in the community of, of politics and activism in recent than we had been in, you know, the past decade or so of our lives. Um, 
And so um, I think people were starting to realize that there is some connection to something in there. They may not have been able to put a finger on it, but they weren't necessarily so confused by the combination of theater and political science. And I think I can't necessarily attest that to what they were thinking, but I do know that I stopped getting that question after a while. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. um, so in terms of then your art side of your life, um, on top of all these, I just, again, with the time, it, it's amazing to me. <laughs> um, but I know that you're also like super into digital art and you do have um, a successful Redbubble page. <laughs> Am I wrong? I'm not. No, wrong. you're you're right. I do. And I wouldn't say successful. I would say I make money on it every month and I'm always excited to get that check. <laughs> that I I call it successful. I mean, yeah. whatever. We don't have to like also depends, get into depends. what you define success as. <laughs> yeah. I don't really know how much other people are making on it. I can't really compare, but it is very cool that I get to say yes, every month I get money from Redbubble. <laughs> and you've been doing that for a long time. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the rule that I set. And I think it's the only reason why I make money on Redbubble is every single thing I make, no matter how ugly it is, I post because someone buys that shit. It's so weird. Like some of the worst stuff. So, um, NFTs. No, I, I try to stay out of that, that world, but, um, but I don't even know what I would do. Like my, my vintage Donald duck drawing, like what? Um, but the, uh, but it is funny because I have some like terrible things on there, but I really haven't recently because I've been anything that I do draw. I, um, my red bubble stickers were designed for niche markets. They were college related or TV show related or things like that. Um, and recently the stuff that I make are not niche market able. They're just, you know, drawings. Um, so, but I do want to add more because I like making money. You know, who doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> we live cool. in capitalist society. So yeah, it's well, what you do. <laughs> I, I feel that. Listen to me. I um, did. I will say at my current job, I, it's at a high school, spoiler alert. Um, yeah, it's, um, I'm in, it's a arts high school and I'm in the production oh, cool. and design department. So I don't teach. Oh, I, I just cool. help run productions and things like that. Um, but I, it's with a school. So I'm walking through the campus a lot. And one of the teachers has one of my stickers on her door. Get out of here. I know. I, and she doesn't know. She didn't know. I haven't been able to run into her to like tell her, <gasps> but so I, funny. I like did a quadruple take. I called everyone I knew. My heart was racing. I was like, Oh my God, look, that's wild. <laughs> I know it's amazing. Oh God, so you've, that's, you've made it big. Knew? I know. I know. I've hit a stranger's classroom door. How could I ever reach anything yeah, higher what, than that? What are the chances that you actually also then work in that school? That's crazy. I know. Oh my God. I love it. That's, that's, that's why cool. my niche markets work. I like find something that nobody else is doing. So she wanted this one sticker about that was related the to sticker? the West wing. It's a reference okay. to the West wing. It's a quote that says decisions are made by those who show up. Okay. And, um, no one else is using that quote on the stick on red bubble. So I'm, I'm the only person that you can buy that sticker from. Wow. <laughs> You're so cool. Okay. So, oh my God. Okay. Related to art stuff. Um, it sounds like you've always had an interest in film and I'm circling this back to, I feel like I heard you say earlier, uh, that you debated going to film first and foremost. Yes. But I then did. you got to do it. I, Kira called me during the pandemic, um, to tell me about this potential prog program and like to look at her portfolio, which I was honored by the way. 
Um, and then you just did it. You, you did the thing you went. I had my parents up until the day before I left were like, is this going to (laughs) happen? Really? (laughs) But it did. It did. Well, I didn't tell them you were, you are, were the singular person that knew I applied. Stop it. No one knew until after I got accepted. Oh my God. I'm so (laughs) flattered right now. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was one of those things that you kind of just, you know, you're scrolling through the internet and you find something and you're like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then you actually apply to it and you're like, oh, I got into the thing. <laughs> what do I do now? That's amazing. Okay. So how was it? Cause we haven't gotten to catch up since you came back. No, no, it was so amazing. I, I tell everyone whenever they ask me that I wish I was still there and I've been saying that, you know, since I left in July, <laughs> but it's still true. I, I loved it so much. I love the city. I love my classmates. We were from all over the world. Um, so I got to, you know, experience just the rest of the world through the eyes of, of my classmates. And I loved being able to do that. There were 12 of us and um, it was a very kind of just throw you in and see how you do program. Um, we all made a short film and in, in the few weeks that we were there, um, and, uh, it was, um, did you have different it, roles like for creating the film? Like, did you, well, we were assigned without roles and then within our groups, we could decide roles. And because our main, um, we, the, the program got shortened, um, to only a month long because of the pandemic. Mm. Um, and the majority of our time was in the process of making the short film. And so they randomly picked our groups and groups of four. And, uh, we ended up, um, our group decided to not necessarily assign roles just so that we all could get experience doing different things. Um, we kind of just landed neatly cut into where we were. Um, you know, we disagreed a bunch. We, we made, we went through with decisions we weren't happy with because other people were happy with it. You know, the things that happens when you do a group project. Um, (laughs) yeah. Um, but it was so amazing and we got to do it in the backdrop of Prague and all of these teachers who are incredibly talented and the school FEMU is, um, one of the best schools in the world for film. And so we got to just be around these people who just love what they do and, and learn so much. And none of us, none of us had, um, spoke the language. I, I spoke the language more than anyone else, which is ridiculous if you know me and my lackluster language skills. Um, and very few of us had been to the city before. And so we just kind of lived and like were people and it was incredible. And we learned so much about ourselves and about filmmaking. And it just made us feel so confident that we are capable of doing things. That was yeah. the biggest thing was when I left, I realized, oh, I can make a short film because I've always been a hesitant person because I'm afraid like, oh, well, I don't have this. I don't have that. I don't have this totally. person to help me. And after we finished, I was like, oh, it's that easy. Like You just got to do it. I yeah. I mean, that's how I felt a little bit when I got accepted into the Columbia program. I was like, oh, so someone else can see this like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I can I can do this. I can explore yeah. this path. Um, It's it's a weird like permission that mm-hmm. you give yourself. you don't need but like you don't need you give yourself <laughs> but it's also like once you get it from someone else you're like oh so I'm not not yeah. crazy <laughs> yeah. and I still I still struggle with it now I'm 
it's weird living in Los Angeles. I'm in a city where now when I tell people my job, I'm now one in a million. I, I've always been used to being someone where my job was an interesting story. Um, and now it's, it's like, Oh, you're another one of those. <laughs> and so it's, has, that, um, has it like changed your aspiration at all? Just like that it's, portion of it. It doesn't change what I want to see out of my life, but it does change my confidence in talking to other people about it. Um, And I think that, and I think it's just because I, the biggest thing that I struggle with is I always like to know things and I like to talk about things that I know. And so when I join a conversation, I join it with an expectation of where I'm at in the conversation um, because I don't like to look stupid. And that's, that's a thing that I need to, you know, allow myself to be sometimes I'm still working on that. But um, here, no, but I, when you're I around, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it. not a, it. it's a universal feeling. Well, well, also, but like I, that was a very distinct feeling I had being in New York um, before the pandemic hit at least even, well, no, just, I guess after school, um, mm-hmm. you know, telling people that, the, that I was pursuing acting and then the response being like, oh, well, like how's it going? What are you auditioning for? What are you in right now? And I'm like, yeah, okay, it's like listen, improving yourself. If I have anything thing. to tell you, I'll tell you like, you need to ask. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good point. Like I will tell you, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's, and for me, it's, it's when I, now when I meet new people and I bring up that I, I work in theater currently and I want to work in film. I now am potentially allowing a response that says, oh, I do that. Let's talk about it. And in theater, I can feel confident in that conversation, but mm-hmm. in film, I, I did not. But I do think that it gives you a basis of um, confidence if you know your stuff. Yeah. And the stuff I know is from a really amazing high school class that I took on film that was two years long and my own personal experiences and FEMU in, in Prague. Those are my experiences. And if you ask me a question that's outside of that world, I haven't learned it yet. And I feel very hesitant about having those conversations, which I shouldn't. I'm working on that. But it definitely that has changed by being in a city that has those kinds of people in it where I've never been in a city like that before. Well, I mean, as long as they're good people and they're not going to like patronize you for not knowing it yet. I yeah. Imagine and I think, that I that... absolutely think that they are. It's, it's, that's tough. <laughs> it's yeah, definitely, that's tough. they're definitely good people. And I have, I've ended up on two film sets so far. Um, one by accident, one is a oh. job. Um, I was very, very busy at the end of the year last year, um, 2021, but I started out and was like, okay, I'm going to ask everyone questions. I'm going to, I'm going to find them when they're free. And I'm going to say, can I ask you some questions? Do you mind? I mean, and that's the only way that you're going to learn. Like, yeah, you, you could I probably this... sit by and try to watch and learn, but that might take a little longer. Like just ask the question. <laughs> exactly. I actually, this advice came specifically from Josh Radner when he came to Penn state. <laughs> um, the I one mean, day, this was the year after I left. Yes. He, he came and talked to us. Thanks to, thanks to the one student was a Kyle, I think. Um, but, uh, one student basically just DM'd him on Twitter and was like, Hey, you want to come to oh, God, so <laughs> talk funny, to the school yeah. theater? And he's like, sure. But he's had a lot of things. But the one thing that act that constantly rings in my head is he said that when you're new on a set, you can ask questions and nobody's going to think twice about it. But if you've been doing it for 10 years and you still don't know what something is, they're going to look at you weird. Now is my time to ask these questions because if I don't ask them now, I'm just going to never learn and it's going to hurt me in the end. So I'm taking this as, as 
I am a baby. I will be a baby for a while in this industry because I don't have years of experience. So I'm embracing my babyhood. <laughs> and I, and that's, that's how I'm viewing it mostly is, yeah, is and I I'm here to learn. I think that's very universal. Like you could apply that to any industry. Hopefully mm -hmm, yeah. people would, you know, be responsive to that, but, and to any age, like as long as you're new to the thing, <laughs> No matter yeah. where you are in your career, like, or your life, I think that is a very fair point. And, um, yeah, and I would people hope love that that talking really people. I think even if they say they don't, you know, want to teach or mentor or whatever, they still love talking to new people about the thing they do. Yeah. So if you ask the right questions, they are so into it. That's great. Well, I'm so happy. I'm so happy that you're enjoying LA and that, um, you are exploring this and that Prague went well. I, I'm going to ask you more questions after, we get off of this. Um, <laughs> but just to quote Kira in the clouds or not quote, but like kind of, um, what's next? Oh God, the dreaded question. Dreaded? No. <laughs> um, well right now I am just, um, I'm the ideas that I'm at the school that I'm working at for until the end of May. Um, this does not have to be literal. Oh, well, like, what are you excited about next? What, what's like on your, Oh, I don't know what's on your heart. What are you excited to explore next? Oh, well, I will <laughs> finish my not dreaded, there because not I dreaded. already started it. Sure. 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 Um, but I do, I love, I work at California school of the arts, San Gabriel Valley, which is a very well-regarded arts high school. And my students are awesome. And my coworkers are awesome. And we create really cool things. And um, I get to do that for the rest of the next few months. But I also am, they are actively aware that this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. So my coworkers and my boss are, are willing to, you know, give me space and time to, if I get, you know, sets that I can be on and projects that I want to do that mm -hmm. I can do that, which is great. Also, it's um, a 30 minute drive out of the city, which means my gas prices are like 30 cents cheaper than everywhere else. And nice. I love that Nice, <laughs> because in California, the gas price at the gas station closest to closest to my house is like four eighty nine. No way. Yep. Are you serious? Yep. <laughs> it's I, ridiculous. No, I went home recently and I was like, it was like $3 something like <laughs> high, high in the $3. And I was like, what, what is happening? No. Why is gas four, so high? 489. I'm totally unaware of the gas prices usually. Cause I live in New York. Yeah. Yeah. But it's where I live is actually a little bit cheaper. If you go more, uh, I think if you go more West, like towards the, the beach and everything, it gets up like past $5, but, um, Get yeah, I know. Here. but my gas at my job is, um, for 418, 419 right now. So oh my God, I'm so sorry that, that you're excited about that. Like I'm <laughs> upset, <laughs> but it, it's great. It, it, it is a great place to be. So I can, you know, leave the stress of a city, which I live in a very suburban section of the city. It's okay. very walkable, but I have trees and sidewalks and stuff, which is That's cool lovely. and houses instead of apartment buildings. So I like yeah. that. Um, but anyway, what's next, uh, theoretically, hypothetically in the cloud. Yeah. Um, well, I'm channeling so this, this art piece that Kira, this digital art piece that Kira made, that's like Photoshop and she's like horizontal. Oh my gosh. That one. Up. <laughs> yes. Literally on some clouds. If you know, you know, if you know, you know, um, <laughs> we're going to throw that in there, but oh anyway, gosh. yeah, that's what I'm channeling right now. Yeah. I mean, I am constantly excited to try new things. And one of the things that I learned in Prague was that I'm a lot 
writer than I thought I was. I always was a good essay writer, but writing dialogue freaked me out. And so I, um, I've decided that I really just want to do anything that gets me really excited about, you know, like that's different, that's new. Um, so I've been trying to, anytime I get an idea, cause I always, you know, you get those ideas in your head that are like, totally. Oh, this is a conversation or this is a scene. Mm-hmm. I'm actually writing it down. And it's just practice for me to like stay creative and stay interested and, and try things because so much of the industry is creating things on your own. But if you're always in your head, which I'm definitely a proponent of not a proponent, I am unfortunately a member of the, in your head world. Um, <laughs> But uh, so I'm trying more to, you know, put things out there. And like just recently, I've gotten very into um, sustainable gift wrapping, which got me into collaging. So I have um, I've been ripping out magazines and cutting out pictures and, you know, collaging in that way, which is so much fun. Um, I always do it with a purpose. You know, I'm sending a are you ever like a couch potato? Yes. Oh my God. I okay, watched so much so, TV. Read my first thing that I gave you. Okay. Yeah, I know. I know. But I just <laughs> like, uh, sometimes I find it a struggle to actually, you know, act on these impulses. It's so hard when I, when I tell you that I'm doing these things, I'm telling you that it's been sitting on my desk for like five days. Cause I did it for like three days in a row. And then I got busy. Like it's okay. I'm only, I'm, I'm definitely giving you the Instagram side of things. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so you are a superhuman, but you're also not, <laughs> I do. Um, you can see behind me. I ha- I just got a projector instead of a TV because I have, um, my room is really weirdly built, but then my ceiling is an angle. So the opposite side of my room is like nine and a half foot tall ceiling or walls. Um, and so I can't really reach things to hang, which by the way, I'm afraid of hanging things. I've always been afraid of hanging things up and decorating, but I've started doing that. And that's my main focus right now is decorating because it scares the living heck out of me. (laughs) What scares you about it? I just, I've, I don't decorate for holidays. I don't put things on walls. I'm the worst. I don't like doing things in the fear that I won't like it or that I have to take it down at some point. I'm, I'm so perpetually, here's a stage manager part of me. I'm so perpetually stuck at thinking about the future that I can't just enjoy something right now. So the idea that one day I'll have to take down these decorations keeps me from wanting to do it now. Oh man. Okay. It's well, this awful. is very self-aware of you though. Like yes. at least you <laughs> yes. know why. I know. I know. And you're taking I, active steps. I mean, you guys can't see this, but I'm looking at Kira's wall right now and it is covered in, in pictures and in. Yes. And look, those are part of my collaging. That's those I cut out it. from magazines. I'm so right proud there. of you. Yeah. And this was, That's you know, great. Facebook marketplace and Facebook buy nothing page represent everybody go on the buy nothing page on Facebook. I'm, I'm a part of that. Yeah. Love it. Um, Love it. and so like these, uh, back here above my wall were from a social justice calendar that someone was giving away on the cool. buy nothing page. So I cut those out that I liked. And then, um, this is actually an old photograph that my, um, that my dad's friend took and I loved it. Cause wow. I just like how the light falls on the, it's a leaf plant. Um, lovely. So you're, so yeah, your that's, way. I'm, I'm basically trying to do things that force me to, to follow through on the stuff I've always wanted to do, but I've been, had some excuse not to do the thing. So I'm collaging. I am writing. I am. Yeah. Yeah. I am putting things on my walls and I'm having so much fun. That's great. I'm so glad that it's not a traumatic experience. (laughs) Um, Okay. Kira, I could literally talk to you for like three hours, but um, to wrap it up, Mm -hmm. where can people find you and your work? 
Instagram, Kira M. Rob, K-I-R-A, M is in mouse, Rob, R-O-B. Um, yeah, that's where I'm most okay. active now. So yeah. follow me on there. I post random shit. And look for her freaking red bubble. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, it's under the same name. <laughs> I, I promise you, some of the really bad stuff is also there. So just I'll, recognize I'm dig for it. it's a spectrum. <laughs> I love it. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much. Um, also, you guys can find the podcast on Instagram at Thoughtful Intentions Podcast for additional content. Um, but thank you so much for listening. This has been Fiona Winch and Kira Robbins on Thoughtful Intentions. Thanks, Kira.